This is Death Watch, the monthly podcast where we eulogize one of the greats who has recently passed by watching some of their work that we weren't previously familiar with. My name is Matt Brown. I'm Matthew Price. That's correct. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. Been too long. I, it ha- feels like it has been a while. Here's, um, here's what's happening, folks. Yeah. We're friends. Yes. And yet... We really only see each other to do the there show are, now. Yeah, there are periods <laughs> of time. Our lives have complicated themselves to yeah. the point where, in in the quest for our own sanity, yeah. more than anything, we're spending whatever time we're not spending uh, uh, at work or whatever. I think both of us are like, man, let's just make cook something. Yeah, man, and take care of myself. You know how I right? spend my weekends? I, I cook things. I know. I see and it. I read books. Yeah, that's it. And it's and it's great. Oh yeah. But you know, I feel like this has now become our only social. Well. Not to get too not to get too OT right off the top, but I will say a long time ago, like probably like fifteen years ago, one of my friends said, uh, who's about my age, so I don't know how he'd figured this out so fast, but he was like, Yeah, after university, if you don't have a thing that draws you and your friends together, it's very unlikely those friendships are gonna stay regular. And I was like, Oh shit, you're fucking crazy. Yeah. What are you talking about? No, no that's absolutely you true. You know. I see you. Yeah. Because of the show. Yeah. I see a couple of my friends from college because we play Dungeons and Dragons together. And everyone else, it's like they, right. they, they pop up every four months and they're like, hey, you want to have a cup of coffee? Unless they're also a friend that you go to work with. Exactly. You're not seeing Exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking of people I'd barely ever see, I just booked myself onto the matinee cast for the first time in like seven years. Hey, great. Yeah. Has it I'm, been that long? It's been a while. Well, I did a bunch of them. This is I Ryan McNeil's like was, show, by the way, for yeah, anyone who doesn't know Ryan about Ryan McNeil's it. really excellent podcast. I feel like it's been uh, um, Lone Ranger. It could be Lone Ranger. Yeah. Like, I did a bunch, yeah. and I'd run out of survey questions. I don't even know if he still does the survey, but, you know, Rise of Skywalker be coming out. So, actually, you know what? The last time I did it might have actually been The Force Awakens. I don't know. Yeah, okay. But, so it'll be nice to close things off. All anyway, right. guys, Listeners, that's all apropos Go find that online. Yeah. Uh, so, we're recording this episode on November 27th. It's going to be in your feed in two days on November 29th. This is our November episode, and as we mentioned last month... Uh, today we're going to be speaking about uh, the genius character actor and leading man-ish, uh, Robert Forster, who died on October 11th, 2019, uh, the same day as his final film project, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, hit Netflix. Uh, I watched uh, Medium Cool for the program today, and what did you, you watched Alligator? I watched Alligator. Medium Cool, of course, is kind of his entree into public life. It's it really is. It's like the first movie that he got noticed for, right? It's where he started. Uh, yeah. And it's, and it's a very neat movie so i am curious it's, to hear your thoughts it is interesting yeah yeah uh, and i watched alligator which is a movie i'd never heard of but then came very highly recommended by from a bunch of different sources myself and, included i fucking love that movie uh, yeah and i i was so pleasantly surprised to find out that i could check off another john sales yeah uh movie because of it because I, I love john sales yeah man uh so yeah anyway yep. we'll talk about that yeah. indeed uh before we do any of that though Roll call. Oh, yeah. Is that now? Now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, last, I want to point out, last month I moved roll call without telling you, <laughs> and you didn't react at all. I know. I try to I try to keep it, keep it fresh. Ugh, Jesus. Keep you guessing. Uh, roll call, of course, the, the feature on the show where I talk about everyone else who may have passed away or who has passed away yeah. since the last time mm-hmm. we recorded the show. It's just a chance for us to catch up and acknowledge that uh, the world spins pretty fast. And People keep on dying. They, they do, and we don't always... <laughs> have enough to talk about to do a whole show about them, but they are significant and have interesting lives. And uh, as always, I've, I found some interesting folks to talk about. The world spins pretty fast, and people, they just keep on falling off it. Yeah. Well, I, I, if that is how they died, I will yeah. make a note. Yeah, um, please do. Most of them just, like, sat in place. Uh, so uh, started off the month really, like, again, 
these things seem to happen as we're recording the show. I feel like as we were recording the show, uh, the uh, U.S. government uh, caught up to Abu uh, Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the emir of ISIL mm-hmm. and the leader of ISIL. And uh, they claimed that they killed him, but of course he actually committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also got his uh, spokesman, Abu Hassan al-Muhajir. Uh, Muhajir, sorry. Uh, and then African-American politician John Conyers, member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1965 to 2017. Golly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then a person who uh, I have in, in brackets here with a question mark, honor roll call, and that is Robert Evans. Well, this so is So I don't question. know what we want to do with Robert Evans, uh, other than, you know, hopefully not uh, swap any bodily fluids. But other than that, I don't know what we want to do there. Well, we've discussed doing him as the December show. And i got to say, it's the end of November right now, and I don't know that a larger candidate has surfaced. We will, we will discuss offline. I will um, just say that yeah. Robert Evans is, that is a, a... That's a career. That's a career. That's yeah. a major impact on American filmmaking. Many reasons that we could do it. So we'll just, we'll... We'll yeah, we'll guessing. confer on that. But uh, I certainly, you know, that's a huge one mm-hmm. uh, in the in the pantheon. Um, character actor, comedian, uh, huge screen presence, John Witherspoon, uh, who uh, played the father in Friday. Uh, the Friday films was in the Wayans Brothers, was in the Boondocks. Uh, very well known uh, American character actor, mm-hmm. uh, and and really great. And many people have said that he should have been nominated. Uh, for his performance in Friday. It's a really great. Right. Uh, and in an otherwise kind of silly movie, it's just a really great performance. Cool beans. Uh, Canadian playwright and writer Bernard Slade, who was 89 and who uh, had, a, I thought, a fast kind of fascinating career. He uh, developed The Flying Nun in hmm. the 1960s and then created The Partridge Family, Right, right. And yes, Bridget yes, Loves yes. Bernie. Mm-hmm. He also wrote the script to a film called Stand Up and Be Counted, which is the first time the Helen Reddy song I Am Woman was ever wow. played. was in that movie. Um, and then it was also a really successful playwright. The play that he wrote uh, that's uh, quite an amazing play is called Same Time Next Year. It was then turned into a film with Alan Alda. But Same Time Next Year is about uh, a, a man and a woman who are both in other marriages and meet once a year to have mm. an affair for many years in the same hotel room. Right. Uh, uh, in 1978, he also wrote the f- he followed that up with the film Tribute, which stars Jack Lemmon and Robbie Benson, and then uh, Romantic Comedy, which had Dudley Moore in it. Uh, he wrote the screenplays for the film versions of all three of those plays, and he was nominated for an Oscar for a screen adaptation of Same Time Next Year. Wow. Uh, and then, right after that, uh, Rudy Besch. Navy SEAL. Yeah. Do you want to talk about he was 90 years old? Yeah. Obviously, he was, yep. lived yep. a long time. But I mean, Rudy, it's, it's it's unfortunate, but like literally, I think probably every six months for the last 20 years, I've checked the internet to see if Rudy had died. Like, I mean, he was already 72 yep. when he was on the first uh, series of Survivor, makes it to the final four by allying himself very early on with Richard Hatch, who obviously went on to, to win that. And it was one of those kind of classic television pairings of this fairly conservative, older military man and this, kind yeah, of, yeah straight and this flamboyant yeah. nudist gay man uh several years his his junior and you know they they are both i guess pragmatic enough that they really couldn't care less about any of the things i just said they just wanted to win that game 
So they uh, they yeah. partnered up and, yeah. and and did quite well. And and yeah, I mean, I, good for him. He he lasted all the way till now. So yeah, he was ninety one years old yeah. when he passed. I believe their survivor is now on season eight hundred. That's correct. So, Actually, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it is literally going into season forty, which I assume is going to be a massive anniversary celebration season. They haven't announced the concept for it yet. But um, and obviously Rudy would never have been a part of that because he was far too old and probably couldn't yeah. care less. Yeah. But uh, I hope they pay tribute to him in some fashion on the uh, on the, in the season to come because uh, he was certainly one of the people. One of the reasons that show is still on the air eight hundred seasons yeah. later. Yeah. I feel yeah. like it's you know next to Hatch himself, he's still like probably the best known. Yeah, he was a candidate. he's a singular yeah. singular part of that first season. Uh, yeah. So okay, we'll get we'll back get back to the list. But I was glad okay. to have a chance to give, yeah, yeah. give you a chance to talk about him. Thank um, you. Uh, Gilmore Girls actor Brian Tarantino died uh, from uh, an apparent drug overdose at mm. age sixty. He currently he was um, starring in uh, Amy Sherman Palladino's new series, uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm. Um, anyway, they found him dead in his apartment, unfortunately, in, mm. in Manhattan. Uh, Yvette Lundy, who was one hundred and three was a member of the French Resistance during the Second World War and uh, was uh, such a memorable m- member of the Resistance. She was actually the inspiration for a character in a film in 2009, film film's called Corcoro. Uh, Louis Eppolito. This is, this is a resume. 71 years old, American police officer, mm-hmm. mobster, and author. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I don't know in what order. Yeah. I feel like it was officer first, then later mobster. I mean, the other, the alternative yeah. would be far more interesting. It's it's like uh, The Departed. Yeah. This guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, American author Ernest J. Gaines, who wrote uh, A Lesson Before Dying, Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, and A Gathering of Old Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack Conroy, Irish cinematographer, he uh, shot films primarily with... Um, uh, oh shit! I can't remember his name, but uh, he he was the he was the DP for My Left Foot and The Field. Oh, Jim, Jim uh, Sheridan. Sheridan. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, British film producer and record executive Nick Powell, co-founder of Virgin Records. He mm-hmm. died at the age of sixty-nine. Uh, he was also the uh, director of the National Film and Television School from two thousand three to two thousand seventeen. Um, in nineteen eighty-three, he and Stephen Woolley founded Palace Productions. They produced The Company of Wolves. Mona Lisa and the Crying Game, all with the wow, yeah, um, all with Neil Jordan. Uh, the The company ultimately collapsed in 1992, but he still reestablished himself with a new uh, production company called Scala Productions, and they went on to produce the British uh, version of Fever Pitch, Twenty Four Seven, Bee Monkey, Last Orders, and Ladies in Lavender. Wow! And I specifically wanted to call out Last Orders, which is a movie that a lot of people are not familiar with and is really, really one of the best Michael Caine movies mm. ever. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Uh, British photographer Robert Freeman. Uh, he's also a graphic designer. Freeman designed the end credit sequence for the Beatles' first two films and also uh, a lot of the film's posters and promotional materials. He also did the album covers for With the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, and Rubber Soul. Mm. Uh, he also, and I was thought this was fascinating. He fi- he shot the first ever Pirelli calendar. What is the Pirelli calendar? So Pirelli, which is a tire maker, makes the premier uh, fashion and um, uh, high fashion photography calendar in really? the world. They produce wow. one every year with a different photographer. He did the first one. Neat. Yeah. Uh, Maria Perigo, who was an Italian puppeteer. 
and the uh, creator of Topo Gijo. So I feel like every month a mm-hmm. famous puppeteer dies. Yeah, it seems so. <laughs> yep. Last month it was the Nestle dog. Yeah. This month it's Topo Gijo, which for anyone older than us mm-hmm. is a very well-known, probably the most well-known novelty act in the history of Ed Sullivan. It is a little mouse puppet mm-hmm. who was wildly successful in Italy and became the equivalent of a viral sensation in North America whenever it appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, which at the time was like being on all the talk shows at once. Right. Like you couldn't get to be a bigger star than if you became a big star on Ed Sullivan, right? Uh, and uh, anyway, she died Thursday in Milan. She was 95. But kids, Google Topo Gijo. Topo Gijo is most important that if you want to do an actual Ed Sullivan impression, mm-hmm. you have to say, and now Topo Gijo. Uh-huh. That's the that's the like the key intonation of doing Ed Sullivan. Um, Broadway actress Laurel Griggs, who was 13 years old, died of an asthma attack. Uh, she made her debut on Broadway at the age of six. Jesus. In Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She also holds a record uh, for being the longest-running person to play Ivanka in Once the Musical. Um, so a, a very sudden, and had been on some television stuff. Uh, um, I think was on an episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine, and mm-hmm. just like freak accident, asthma Horrible. attack. Yeah, uh, Jacques Imbert, known as Jackie Lamat, who was a French gang leader. He came to prominence in the 1960s Marseille underworld. So basically, he is like the bad guys in the French Connection. Uh, hmm. He he was considered the last godfather. His his nickname, Jackie Lamat, means Jackie the Madman <laughs> in Provençal. Uh, he was also known as Pasha and Matou, and in 22 Bullets, a French film released in 2010, uh, based on him, he was played by Jean Renault. Neat. Yeah. Uh, James uh, Gustave Edouard Le Mesurier, uh, Order of the British Empire, uh, was the British co-founder of the White Helmets. Oh, um, wow. Volunteer civil defense organization in the Syrian Civil War. He was a former British Army officer, previously worked with the UN Peacekeeping Force in the former Yugoslavia. He was also director of the non-profit, non-profit Mayday Rescue Foundation. He died in 2019 in his home near Istanbul. Uh, Virginia Leith, who was an actress, starred in Fear and Desire, the first feature film directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, before she, before turning to her mo- most famous role, that of the disembodied head in a pan in the schlock classic *The Brain That Wouldn't Die*. <laughs> she was well, ninety-four, so the brain I, finally died. It did. Yeah. Uh, she died uh, at her home in Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was also a contract player at 20th Century Fox. She appeared in Richard Fleischer's Violent Saturday opposite Victor Mature. And she also uh, played Joanne Woodward's sister who falls for Robert Wagner's uh, Bud Corliss in A Kiss Before Dying. Um, film producer, uh, Bronco Lustig. Yeah. Uh, Croatian film producer. He won Academy Awards for Schindler's List and Gladiator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the only person born in the present-day territory of Croatia to ever have won two Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, started his film career as an AD. He was the location manager for uh, Norman Jewison's Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Um, uh, and he was in a concentration camp and won an he, Oscar. He was. Yeah. Not while he was in the camp, but no. yes. Uh, he, <laughs> he presented the Oscar to Yad Vashem for eternal safekeeping. So it's actually at the Holocaust Memorial, his mm-hmm. Oscar. He also, at the in 2011, 
he celebrated his bar mitzvah at Auschwitz in front of Barrack 24A. He wasn't able to do it as, at the age of 13 because he was a prisoner in that barrack. Yeah. Uh, so he's the one who, when he won for Schindler's, yeah. he said it is an incredibly long way from Auschwitz to this stage. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence G. Paul, award-winning production designer and art director, was the uh, production designer on Blade Runner, among yeah. other things. He was 81. Uh, he had a long history in Hollywood. He designed for films like Back to the Future and Romancing the Stone, City Slickers. Uh, he was uh, nominated for the Academy Award for uh, production design in 1982 for Blade Runner. He also, the Oscar ultimately went to the creators of Gandhi, but he later won a, a BAFTA together with Sid Mead and Douglas Trumbull. Um, three years later, he, he uh, was nominated for a BAFTA for Back to the Future. Um, he was born in Chicago in 1938. He graduated from the University of Arizona. He was soon discovered uh, that architecture was just too conservative for him. And after he saw Dr. Zhivago, he decided that he would work in films. Sure. Uh, Thomas Spurgeon, who was an American writer, historian, and editor in the field of comics. Most notable, he had a five-year run as editor of the Comics Journal that uh, sort of cemented the Comics Journal as a legitimate place for criticism and really elevated it to, uh, to a, a kind of a new level in people's eyes. Um, I'll tell you what else died this month. It lived briefly and then died. And that is McClunky. Yeah. McClunky. Well, here's, here's the thing. It was there and then I, it was not there. I watched it last night and it was back. What is up I with McClunky? No. I was ready to put a nail in that McLaughlin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Dick Stevenson, who was 89, he mm -hmm. was, uh, this does not sound like a notable death. He was a Canadian tour boat operator, but he is credited as being the inventor of the sour toe cocktail. Wow. Do you know what the sour toe cocktail is? Is it a toe in a, in a lemon? It is. The sour toe cocktail began during Prohibition in the 1920s uh, when two rum running brothers were caught in a blizzard. One of them put his foot through a patch of ice and soaked it, and when they got back, his foot was frozen solid. To prevent gangrene, the other one used his axe to chop the guy's toe off. Mm -hmm. He put the toe in a jar of bourbon to commemorate the event and presumably preserve the toe. In 1973, Dick Stevenson found the jar with the toe in it in a cabin. Oh, God. He came up with the idea of the Sour Toe Cocktail Club, an exclusive club with one membership requirement. You have to drink To gain admittance to the club, you must drink the Sour Toe Cocktail, and the lips of the participant must touch the toe. Uh, this happens in the Yukon uh, in Dawson City. To date, over 69,000 customers have touched the toe. Oh, my God. They are on their, like, fifth or sixth toe. At one point, the toe was stolen. <laughs> you know, you Americans think, uh, <laughs> think the best thing about Canada is the free health care. No. no. No, no. Well, you need that if you're going to touch the toe yeah, with your absolutely. lips. Yeah, absolutely. We come up with shit like this. Yeah. You ever kiss the cod? <laughs> it's the other one. I, yeah, I man. Just, I love that we have these traditions yep. that are so great. I guess or you could drink the worm if you're in the States. But Yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, John Mann, lead singer and a songwriter from Spirit of the West. Uh, who, uh, you know, I don't know what. Speaking of Canada. Say, like, yeah. fuck, man. That's, yeah. That's a brutal. That's mental. And 57 and died from Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I, you know, if you're of my age or 
maybe a little older. Boy, Spirit of the West is important. Like that's that's big, big. Yeah, speaking of Canada, times. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, um, it was university, but like you literally, I don't think there was a bar in Kingston that you could get out of on a Friday or with, Saturday without, night without Spirit of the West being the last number. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, sorry, Home for a Rest. Home for a Rest, yeah, last yeah, number. yeah, yeah. And and the other songs too. I mean, they're yeah. just great. And the idea of putting kind of folk instruments, traditional instruments, front and center in, yeah. into pop music in that yep. way, really uh, impactful and uh, and sorely missed. Um, okay, so uh, Guido uh, Badano, who was ninety two, he was an Italian merchant marine officer, and the and this this came up, and I thought, well, this is just like a weird Seinfeld moment. He was the second officer on the Andrea Doria. Wow. <laughs> so, like, I don't know if he would have let George into that building. Mm-hmm, I feel mm-hmm. like he wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are still people who survived the Andreatoria yeah. that are still with us. Um, uh, Jake Burton Carpenter, who was mostly just known as Jake Burton, he was an American snowboarder, and he founded Burton Snowboards, uh, which, if you've snowboarded, you've probably used a Burton snowboard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Michael Pollard, who was a character actor, uh, probably best known for playing C.W. Moss in Bonnie and Clyde, but uh, oh, yeah, geez, I don't think I knew that guy was still alive. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was born in 1939, so he wow. was 70. Uh, he um, uh, he got a, a best supporting actor nomination for Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in an episode of the original series of Star Trek, the one with the all child planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode's called Miri. He played the leader. Yep. Um, uh, my personal favorite in 1987, he was played the role of the inquisitive volunteer firefighter Andy in the film Roxanne, which for my money, I don't think there's a funnier performance in that movie, which means there might not be a funnier performance in the 1980s. Um, wow. He's like fucking amazing in Roxanne. Um, the following year, he played Herman, who was the homeless man who thought Bill Murray was Richard Burton in the movie Scrooged. Uh, and my personal favorite credit for him, in 1989, he was on the then-series Superboy playing Mr. McSillaplick. Ah. Because he totally looks like that How dude. do you pronounce that? Mixilplick? Mixilpatillic, mm-hmm. I think. Just try saying it backwards, and he'll come and tell you. I'd rather not. Uh, yeah. Uh, cartoonist Gahan uh, Wilson. Who yeah. Was 89, mm-hmm. And I don't, like, I don't know. If you don't know everything about Gahan Wilson, Google it. But that's, yeah, buddy. you know. It's pretty serious. We can't really describe his artwork here on the show. It's an audio show. Yeah. You do, do yeah. some Googling. I will say that that's, you know, what, there are very few cartoonists or really artists of any kind where, like, you only have to see their work for a second mm-hmm. and you know exactly who it is. Um, uh, Arthur Ronald Marks, who was an American film and television director, writer, producer, and distributor, best known for working the black exploitation genre. He directed Bonnie's Kids, Detroit 9000, Friday Foster, Bucktown, The Monkey Hustle, and JD's Revenge. Uh, started off working on Perry Mason. He also directed episodes of Starsky and Hutch, Mannix, I Spy, Dukes of Hazard, uh, lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, also, those black exploitation movies, yep. not that great. Oh, all right. <laughs> Detroit Nine Thousand is pretty good, but yeah. you know, Friday Foster and Bucktown. I was always like, God, why do those exist? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this this one I thought was again. Sometimes I run across someone who's died, and then it's really the story of their life that's like so mm-hmm. fascinating to me. So this needs to be a movie. Um, uh, Oliver Albert Ollie Croft, Order of the British Empire. Born 1929, died now, so 90 years old. He was 
And it starts off, you're like, I mean, I guess this is something. He, he was a darts administrator mm -hmm. and the founder of the British Darts Organization. And nice. I was like, okay, well, that's something. Anyway, he apparently was one of the most influential protagonists in darts for almost four decades, having set up and run the British Darts Organization from its inception in 1973. And here's where it piqued my interest, until he was voted off the board in August 2011. Wow. And I was like, voted off the board? What's that? The split in darts. Hmm refers to an acrimonious dispute between the professional darts players and the game's governing body, the British Darts Organization. In 1993, the players were very upset by the game's big decline in television coverage uh, from 1989 and the early 90s, and by what they saw as the inability to reverse that decline, culminating in 16 top-ranked players, including every previous world champion who was still active, leaving the darts organization and forming the World Darts Council, which is now the Professional Darts Corporation. But Croft and his organization proceeded to ban the rebel players from playing county darts. Croft is quoted as saying, I don't owe any dart players a breath mint. <laughs> <laughs> How is this not a Ford versus Ferrari style movie Jesus. at this point? The split in darts is its own Wikipedia article. That's incredible. Yeah. I was like, this is something, mm -hmm. right? Uh, who else died? Oh, right. Koala bears. They're dead. They're gone. Uh, um, in happier news, Harry Morton, who was an American restaurateur and the founder of the restaurant chain Pink Taco. All right. Fuck that guy. Yeah. He was the former owner of the nightclub The Viper Room mm -hmm. when he had a hand in murdering River Phoenix. Yep. Uh, he was the son of Peter Morton, who co-founded the Hard Rock Cafe, and the grandson of Arnie Morton, who was the founder of the restaurant chain Morton's. All right. Uh, so he came into money and then proceeded to make everyone's lives worse. Yep. Uh, Frank Biondi, American businessman and CEO of Viacom from 1987 to 1996 and Universal Studios from 1996 to 1998. Uh, okay, another one that it was just like a personal sort of favorite of mine. Uh, I have a little bit to talk about here. I know we're running a bit short on time, but I do want to talk about this person. John Simon. All right. Uh, film critic and writer. Uh, he, John Simon is, in my opinion the best writer ever to hate the things he wrote about. Uh -huh. He wrote the best scathing reviews that you will ever read. He is the opposite of Richard, uh, Robert e Roger Ebert. Mm -hmm. He uh, was known, and this is my favorite part about him, he would dwell on what he saw as just physical flaws of the actors in movies, <laughs> which is my favorite thing that nobody does anymore. Sure, Nobody's like, you know what the problem is? This one's ugly. Yeah. Like, I love that he would, he called Wallace Shawn unsightly. Yeah. He said Barbara Streisand's nose quote, cleaves the giant screen from east to west, bisects it from north to south. It zigzags across our horizon like a bolt of fleshy lightning. <laughs> Kathleen, well, not very Kathleen nice. Turner is a, quote, braying mantis. <laughs> In his memoir, Life Itself, Roger Ebert wrote, I feel repugnance for the critic John Simon, who made it a specialty to attack the way actors look. They can't help how they look any more than John Simon can help looking like a rat. <laughs> <laughs> According to the New York Times, in his 1972 collection of, of uh, reviews, Reverse Angle, he discusses 245 films and recommends 15 of them. Wow. Yeah. Love this guy. Why the fuck did he have a job? I know, because his writing is impeccable. Huh. Like, that's the thing. His writing is impeccable. Yeah. He oh. just hates everything. He's like, the. that's my favorite thing about reading. You don't have to agree with him. It's just... Great, great, great writing. Right. Um, 
cultural criticism for Simon was never a popularity contest. As he put it, critics are off after something far more elusive, pursuing their own reactions down to the rock bottom of their subjectivity and expressing them with almost uh, uh, a Western artistry so that what will always elude the test of objective truth will at least become a kind of art, the art of illumination, persuasion, and uh, good thinking and writing. Um, this is his review of Star Wars. Oh, God. From 1977. All right. I sincerely hope that science and scientists differ from science fiction and its practitioners. Heaven help us if they don't. We may be headed for a very boring world indeed. <laughs> Strip Star Wars of its often striking images and its highfalutin scientific jargon, and you get a story, characters, and dialogue of overwhelming banality without even a future cast to them. Human beings, anthropoids, or robots, you could probably find them all more or less like that in downtown Los Angeles today. Certainly the mentality and values of the movie can be duplicated in third-rate non-science of any place or period. All right, great. I, <laughs> I am sorry he's gone. He was still writing reviews. Jesus. Yeah. What was his last review, do you know? I don't, but I, we should find we it. Should but find I, out. But I was going to make a suggestion that maybe yeah. we would do him and just pick some of the reviews we disagree with most strongly Holy and do those films. Holy shit. Because I kind of feel like that That's would be a bad. great way to do it. Anyway, we'll okay, talk. Okay, only if I, we can read the reviews. Yeah, yeah. There are some the book show. collections of yeah. his of his uh, film reviews at the public library and stuff, so I thought we could like go through, find some choice ones, and photocopy them and read them. Yeah. Uh, only a few more to go, and then we are done. Just two more, really. So one is Howard Cruz, who was uh, uh, an alternative cartoonist. He mm -hmm. died just a couple days ago. Uh, very well known, one of the first cartoonists, underground uh, comics cartoonists, uh, who explored gay themes in his comics. Uh, he was the co he was the founding editor of Gay Comics in 1980. Mm -hmm. He created the gay theme strip Wendell during the 80s, and he reached a more mainstream audience in 1995 when uh, Vertigo published his graphic novel Stuck Rubber Baby, mm -hmm. which is a really good, really good graphic novel. Uh, and then just, I think, today, uh, Jonathan Miller, um, who was a member of Beyond the Fringe uh, and a very accomplished uh, director in many, many different uh, mediums and genres. He was also a medical doctor. Uh, he was While he was studying medicine, he was in the Cambridge Footlights. So if you don't know what the Cambridge Footlights is, very similar to like the Hasty Pudding Club at Harvard, it is a... It is a review com comedic review organization of volunteers. Mm. Other past members include Douglas Adams, Richard Ayoade, uh, Graham Chapman, John Chi, John uh, Cleese got their start there. So like the core of, of Monty Python came from the Footlights. Mm -hmm. uh, Olivia Coleman, Fry and Laurie were wow. in the Footlights. Uh, it's basically ground zero for all modern British comedy. And mm -hmm. he was one of the members in the 60s. He His contemporaries at the time were Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And he partnered with them and Alan Bennett uh, to create the uh, Broadway show, first the West End and then the Broadway show Beyond the Fringe, which essentially launched all of their careers. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to comedy, theater, opera, and television, he also continued to work in medicine. I have this wonderful 3D pop-up anatomy book that he wrote called The Human Body, uh, where all the pieces move and hmm. like it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Neat. Yeah, so that is uh, Roll Call. Oh, but there is one other thing that oh, we would no. be remiss what did I on miss? this program. What did I miss? This Death Watch show, if we did not mention, that the concept of death itself for movie stars ended about three oh, weeks ago so right. when James Dean oh, Jesus. was cast forgot. in a fucking movie. And the directors are playing it off like, we didn't think this was going to be a big deal. But I didn't. <laughs> okay, for those, for anyone who listened to our previous show, yeah, I feel like I called this in like year one of our previous show. We talked about like, oh well, yeah, when's there going to be a movie with Humphrey Bogart? Yeah, it? no, right? I mean it's 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 my only disappointment is that they went with Dean. They yeah. could have they Orson Welles or Humphrey Bogart. Sure. Make it happen, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I just like man, yeah. th to think about that. That we're now going to be inundated with movies where 
just dead people are just playing not not as themselves or as recognizable roles. They're they, these guys are like, no, we just wanted James Dean to play this different character. Yeah, I'm like, how the yeah. fuck are you gonna do that, you wackos? Well, they're they're not. I mean, it's you know, it it won't be as good as uh, as um, Scarlett Johansson playing an Asian person, but I mean, not. it'll be close. Did you see her as that tree? She's so good as the tree. I don't need. I don't think I need to see that. No. Yeah. Um, she's not listen, actually playing a tree. No, she just yeah. said that she should be able to. And yeah, I'm like, I, you trying to do Vin Diesel out of a job? Come on now. <laughs> he right. is Groot. He is Groot. He is Groot. Yeah. Look it. Um, I really enjoy the roll call. I Thanks. don't care if it goes long. Oh, I'm good. Not, I like to know who dies. Oh, good. I don't know anything. I, I really enjoy compiling it yeah. and getting to talk about yeah. it. It's fun. Indeed. Let's do a real quick bio on Robert Forster. By the way, because this month was pretty chaotic, I just want to offer up a special thanks to Past Matt, who for some reason did the homework on Forster like four weeks ago, saving me from having to do it today. Oh, thank God. Beautiful. So, Forster was born in Rochester, New York in 1981. uh, 1981. Obviously, (laughs) past Matt was a little drunk at the time. (laughs) Or maybe present Matt. Uh, Anything's possible. Nineteen forty-one. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, Rochester, one of the uh, many favorite little towns in the United States of uh, this podcasting duo right here. Uh, yeah. He was the son of Robert Forster Sr., a goddamned elephant trainer for the Ringling Brothers and wow. Barnum and Bailey Circus. <laughs> wow. Yep. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, he he was actually born Robert Foster Jr. before changing his name to uh, Forster. Forster attended the University of Rochester, got a Bachelor of Arts in History with the intention to become a lawyer. Uh, but after appearing in some student productions, he decided to become an actor instead. He grew from supporting roles in films to his breakout role in Medium Cool, which is the film I'll be discussing today. Pivoted to television in the 70s with lead roles in Banyan and Nakia. Continued to work as a supporting player in larger Hollywood films such as The Black Hole, which I still have not seen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. and well, in, Disney Plus. In B-movies such as Alligator, which is what you watched. Yeah. Um, like many actors, he had a late career resurgence thanks to Quentin Tarantino. In this case, after Tarantino cast him as the co-lead uh, as Max Cherry in Jackie Brown, 1997 which remains one of my favorite films of the 90s, certainly one of Forster's best performances uh, for which he was nominated for yeah. an Academy Award. Yeah. He also, I didn't know this, circled Twin Peaks in the early 90s but had That's to bow right. out due to a prior commitment. That's right. He finally gets to join the ensemble in Twin Peaks The Return 25 years later. Uh, he became a key bench player on television uh, in guest roles on shows such as Heroes and the main supporting role in uh, Karen Sisko, furthering his rather perfect fit within the world of Elmore Leonard's writing. He, of course, had a uh, an amazing supporting turn in the second last episode of Breaking Bad as the man who relocated Walter White to the uh, middle of nowhere to escape the law and then reprised that role in the Breaking Bad movie. Uh, I referred to that in our last episode, how is there a scene in that film that turns almost entirely on Forster's ability to deliver what I call his knowing unreadability. He yeah. knows something, yeah. he ain't showing you what it is. That's and right. Yet and yet, he's showing you that he knows it. showing you that he knows it. Yeah, yeah, it's quite incredible to yeah, watch. It's yeah. neat. So, yeah. uh, should we start with Medium Cool? Why don't we start with Alligator, just to Let's get it out of the way. It's, it's not the hardest movie to parse, no. I would say, but it is like uh, an enormous amount of fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, somewhat in a cheesy way, sure, and somewhat in a not cheesy way. So it's yeah. it's an interesting place and time in movie making because it is. It, I think what's what struck me about it was, uh, and I'll kind of set the scene of what the movie is, but but it it was made just prior to home video mm-hmm. becoming a thing. It was made in kind of the last throes of there's movies and there's TV. And yeah, they're very different in terms of how you approach them. And it was made by a kind of a low-budget independent studio. So it's Alligator is pretty clearly 
only only exists because of Jaws. Yes. <laughs> and they were like, what else lives in water yeah. that we can, right? Um, uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of clear almost from the very beginning. It's Is, is it Corman? Is it a, a Corman production? It, I don't think so, but okay. it's like American International Pictures or something. It's okay. something like that because yeah. John Sayles wrote it and he was working on Piranha and other stuff for Corman. And like, yeah. it's in that Joe Dante, John Sayles kind of right. triangle of people and things, right? Um, it's a Louis Teague is the director. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it's all around that kind of, you know, <laughs> that Teague. little, yeah, Louis Teague, you know, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying, like, it's, you know, these are like, there is this, I think Demi would have been in that group. Yeah, like, yeah. there is just this little sort of like cohort yep. of guys, mostly white dudes mm-hmm. uh, at the time, but who are sort of like, They've not necessarily come out of film school, but they all love movies a lot, and they don't have a lot of money, and they're sort of working on that Corman model, even if they're not right. working directly for him. Of course. Uh, and that's what this is. Um, and it also is so patterned on Jaws in the sense that, like, oh, let's put this in a kind of a real-world prosaic environment of politics and you know, and that sort of blah, blah, blah that, that Jaws kind of operates on in a surface way with the town and the mayor and all mm-hmm. that. Like, that's, it's, it's, there's a, obviously there's a lot of that going into it. Um, it has a monster that is, I don't know, five times as fake as the shark in Jaws. Like, Certainly. it's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty clearly a shopping cart with an alligator head on it mm-hmm. that they just push through the water with the camera behind it. Yes, indeed. Uh, but man, it's fun. That's how I'd do it. Yeah, and it's that's how Dad did it. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's really fun. Um, Forster's main contribution, apart from just being terrific in it, is that he, at the time, was pretty actively losing his hair, and he just said, can I just make this a part of the character that I, I'm going to spend the whole movie, whenever I am not dealing with the main action, being like, is this, am I losing my hair? Is that <laughs> and it's such a cool little thing that's like really humanizes him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the script itself is quite good, I think, for this kind of movie. It's very, this is a movie that knows what kind of movie it is. Yeah. And the reason I say it's interesting that it happens just before home video is this is the kind of movie that now they would just put straight to video. Sure. Um, as a kind of a, ri- like, this is a ripoff of another movie movie. Um, which has now become so devalued that, like, when you see those sorts of, I can't remember the name of the studio, but there's like a, a asylum really asylum and asylum, yeah, yeah. those the mockbusters. That's, that's kind of what this is. It's a mockbuster, except with a big budget released to regular theaters, mm-hmm. um, and that's actually kind of a good thing. I kind of wish that more there was mm-hmm. more of that. Like, I think honestly, I'm pretty sure the the last time there was a movie like that, it might have been Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, like like there's there's not enough of these kind of like. Look, we're not trying to make anything that original. We're just trying to have some fun, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's kind of, you know now the only time you get a hangout movie, it's like the Tarantino film, right? right? You can't get just like a low rent hangout film, and that's what this is, and it's it's really really enjoyable for being that. Yeah, I would say. And I also think, I mean, per its time when it's released, it's an interesting bridge into the time of home video because it's definitely one of those ones that in the early '80s, '84, '85, '86, you'd see it on the shelf yeah, at Video Flix, yeah, yeah, and just based on the schlocky cover art you'd be like alligator yeah hell yes yeah. i'll watch the alligator yeah um yeah i saw it like 10 years ago on a like a 16 millimeter print that's the way to see that movie oh i i couldn't agree more yeah. i wish i had yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's, the way to do it's it. very fun yeah um he's terrific in it uh the the story is actually pretty smartly constructed mm-hmm. it moves from the alligator starts by attacking 
it, it's a it's a like there's a central metaphor of the alligator being like any social ill. It starts at the lower classes mm-hmm. and nobody cares about it, and it's only <laughs> once it attracts attacks the rich people that yeah. anyone does anything. Of course, right? so nice. yeah, so there is thanks, some, John Sales. There's some tonality there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I uh, one of the things I, I after I saw my movie that I felt uh, you were fortunate is you kind of got to see what I consider to be the real Robert Forster. Like he's he's definitely the Robert Forster we know and remember in that movie, and in mine he is not, and I was disappointed. He's pretty young, too. yeah, he's and it's very young, and it's a weird movie because it's a run and gun. They're actually shooting right. the movie with people who don't know they're in the movie yes. for a lot of it. So yeah. yeah, so medium cool for anyone who doesn't know, it's Haskell Wexler's film from '69, in which basically he's basically making a combined fiction nonfiction movie set at the 1968 Democratic National Convention, right, and. You know, a fascinating piece of political cinema because he really is constructing a very loose narrative around the the actors who are Robert Forster and Peter Boners. And yeah, they're they're improvising in front of the actual convention. I yeah, think, part of it. Yeah, yeah, but that's just it. Like yeah. they will often just kind of get into real situations and like fucking Jesse Jackson's just there at some point. You know, and it's like it yeah. just like you, there, there's no way to tell when you are watching real people versus staged scenes. And and back and forth and 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 so I mean I I'm pretty sure that when Robert Forster gets in a naked tickle fight with with one woman, <laughs> uh, that's probably staged. But honestly, who the fuck who knows? knows? Yeah. Who the fuck knows? Yeah. But um, did like, Wexler shoot the the Mardi Gras stuff in uh, in um, uh, what's it called? Uh, oh, fuck. All right, come back to me. What what category of film are we talking in, about? Um, Is it an Easy Rider? Did he shoot that stuff first? Because that's a similar approach, right? They just yeah. went to Mardi Gras yeah. and then put their actors in front of maybe. the Mardi Gras yeah. and then like put it in their movie. Yeah. Right? I mean, the Easy Rider is a good touch point because like this is definitely part of that groundswell of counterculture filmmaking that yeah. sort of gave birth to the 70s as we know it. Um, as a as a film to watch for Robert Forster, it is interesting. Like it's an interesting movie because it is the start of his career. It's his breakout role. But like it, the way the movie is made, you see the back of this guy's head much more than you see the front of it. <laughs> right. He yeah. is not really a character, and there's not really a story that's about him. The movie is a kind of an essay about, you know, can the camera, can the news, can the media truly be neutral in the world? Yeah. And that's obviously still very valuable and relevant. It has, you know, one of the most famous final shots of any movie in history. You've probably seen it somewhere in a documentary, which is where... You know, there's a car crash, and then the camera pulls off the car crash, pans over, and you see Wexler operating a second camera, and he just pans it straight into the mouth of the camera that's filming, and then it fades to black. Right. And, you know, when you see it, you're like, oh, that's where this is from. Yeah. It's one of those things. Um, but, yeah, as an opportunity to sort of see Forster work, it was it was a bit of a letdown for me. It's still a very interesting movie that I, I kind of recommend everybody watch at least once. Um, but, yeah, it didn't give me a lot for him. Okay, the man fair. himself. Yeah, yeah, if you want a lot for him, Jackie Brown. Yeah. Alligator. Yep. Uh, um, sorry, what was the one you mentioned that you still haven't seen? Uh, what did I mention? That? Oh, Black Hole. Black Hole. Yeah, yeah. You. No, I definitely want to yeah. see. I definitely want to see that now. Many reasons yeah. to watch Black Hole. Yeah. Uh, he is one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I will say. Yeah. But if you do want to see how nice uh, Robert Forster's ass was when he was uh, like in his well, 20s. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's medium cool, man. Yeah, medium cool. Like, forget everything else. He is uh, like, he's lickable yeah. in that film. He's yeah. really gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And he's also like a pretty, like, I, you know, again, not huge on the characterization, but he's a very intense character. So it's like, you know, you get a lot of, he lot was of so brooding. much more laid yeah. back 
yeah. later on, yeah. you know, yeah. much more contemplative in the way he delivered yeah. performance. So, yeah, that was neat. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think we'll wrap it up here and we'll figure out who we're going to do for December uh, shortly and announce it on Twitter at Death Watch Pod. I do want to take this opportunity to just give a huge uh, thanks to Aaron Van Domelen. He's the man who built the recording studio in which we have been recording since we started this show. He's uh, He was a former co-worker of mine. Unfortunately, he's no longer uh, working at this organization. I miss him terribly and I really do appreciate that we still get to... Uh, you know, sit in these comfortable seats, use these excellent microphones, and uh, send you Death Watch every month. So, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, everyone who's listening to this episode. And we'll uh, we'll talk to you again in December, unless one of us dies. Tedrick.